morning, everyone. It's uh, good to be with you here this morning. I missed you guys last week. I, I was summoned to be out at uh, Sterling last week, and you guys got to see Matt and Marina, which was really great to have them out here. But I am super glad to be back here um, and to be able to see your faces. And, and after the service, uh, just a reminder, we've got about 80 brownies that need to be eaten. All right. We've got ones with nuts and no nuts, so you've got no excuse. Um, let's be honest, your dieting has gone out the window long ago already. It's already the 10th of February. None of us are doing that anymore. Um, so brownies outside, we'll make sure to just eat. Um, it's just part of just appreciating all of you who, who have worked so hard for us in this last year. Um, but enough of that. Let's dive into our sermon this morning. We have been unpacking this concept of pursuing life in the Holy Spirit. And maybe some of you haven't been here over the last two weeks. Let me just give you a bit of an update on what we mean by that. Well, when we talk about pursue, we're talking about being intentional. Um, you've heard me talk about it and you'll hear me again throughout the series. There's a difference between being intentional and having good intentions. A lot of us had good intentions of dieting this year. Very few of us were intentional on actually doing it. You have to be intentional. And so we realize when it comes to the thing of the Christian faith, there are many things in which we need to be intentional in doing, intentional in seeking. And so one of those things is seeking life in the Spirit. And so we as a church want to be intentional in that. But what do we mean by life? Well, we mean energy, we mean vitality, we mean vuma, we mean some like some oomph. That's what we're talking about. But at the same time, we're talking about a holistic thing of every aspect of our lives. Some of you are husbands, some of you are wives. Uh, can't be both of those. You can only be one of those at a time. But you, some of you are daughters and, and sons and colleagues and business owners. And whatever it might be, we need to make sure... It, Every one of the aspects, boxes, hats we wear is that we wanting to have life in the Holy Spirit in those things. But probably the most important thing is we need to understand who this Holy Spirit is. And in the last two weeks, we've kind of been unpacking that. And we started off in the first week by saying and focusing on who is the Holy Spirit. And we started off by saying who the Spirit isn't. He isn't a force. He isn't this universal energy that's somewhere in the, in, the, in the universe in which we have to use ancient scripture to get ancient, ancient techniques to be able to tap into him so that we might experience the best me or the best life that I can have. That's not who he is. He's not a, an experience. He's not a feeling. He's not entertainment. He is a person. That's who he is. And we, we described that and spoke about that in a way that there are three ways in which we understand it. One, he has a mind. He, he's able to uh, search the depth of who God is, which means he's got one heck of a mind on him that is brilliant. Uh, he has e emotions. He, he, gets, he loves. He, he gets angry. He gets grieved. Um, he also has a will. He does what he wants to do. He's sovereign. And that's important for us as a church to realize that he's not this puppet and we are the puppet masters and we make him jump around as we desire, but rather he has a sovereign will. Why? Because he's not a second-rate being. He's not someone who is there just to give us life advice, but rather he is divine. 
He is God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere. He does things that God can only do and is things that God can only be. He is God, co-equal, equally divine to the Father and the Son. He is God. And that is extremely important for us to grasp. Because if we grasp that, Man, there are some beautiful things that we realize. Can we just stop and be in awe and wonder this morning of the fact that the Holy Spirit is God? That means God himself dwells in you. Isn't that a wonderful privilege? In the Old Testament, he had to dwell in tabernacles and and temples. But now with the new covenant, because of what Christ has done, God himself comes and abides in you. Man, isn't that awesome? But it also has some implications for us. It it has some uh, positive implications in, in that this amazing God not only dwells in you, but he cares so much about you. That he would intimately know your thoughts, your feelings. He would come along and guide you and lead you in life, point you to Jesus. This is God himself. Isn't that incredible? But at the same time, there's some weightiness behind what he says, isn't there? Because he's not the second-rate being, he is God speaking. That when we are convicted of sin in our lives, man, it is God talking. When he says, Joe, you need to do this, he is not just messing around. It's not just some advice you can take or not, but rather it's a commandment from God himself. That when he says, Joe, you need to obey this part of scripture, man, he's being serious. It has some weightiness behind it. When he asks me to share my faith, it's not just a suggestion by a second-rate being, but rather it is God going, there is life over there. Go, I'm moving, do something, be a part of it. It has some weight. There's some weightiness behind those little promptings that we experience as Christians. It is God himself talking to you. That is incredible. It's a wonderful privilege, but it should not be taken lightly. And what we discussed last week was the fact that we need him. We need him. We need him desperately. If we are going to be what God wants this church to be, man, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're going to be the individuals that God wants you to be. We see in Ephesians 2 verse 10 that he has a plan for you. A purpose in which he has done before the foundations of the world. That he has come along and gone, this is what I want you to do individually. If we're going to achieve those things, church, let us not be ignorant or arrogant to think that we can do it in our own strength. Man, if David needed him, if Moses needed him, if Gideon needed him, if Samson needed him, if all the prophets needed him, if all the apostles needed him to do the work that they had to do, then may I suggest that we here at Sunny Ridge need him too. We need him. We need to depend on him. But I realize when we come to the things of the Holy Spirit, that, as Mark used the word, we have some apprehension. But I hope that as you've gone through the last two weeks that you would realize that he is good. That he has some great things and good things that will benefit you in life. And that you need him more and more. And so this morning we're going to focus on the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation. And my hope is twofold. 
my goal is twofold. So I'll, I'll lay them on the table before we go. One, for those of you who are already believers in Jesus, I hope that you would see his intimacy, that he would even come and be involved in your salvation and intricately and importantly, that you would see your need for him, but you would see how good he is towards you, that he would even be a part of your salvation. But two, as, as if those of you who aren't Christian, you're going, man, I'm just checking this thing out. I've got people who have dragged me here this morning. My hope is that you would see Christ so clearly that, um, that you would come and you would join us as believers and you would see the goodness that God has towards you. So those are my, those are my, um, my goals and aims this morning. So keep that in mind as we go through this. When we think of salvation, often we credit a lot to the Father and to the Son, and, and rightfully so. I mean, if it wasn't for the Father's unconditional love towards you and me, we would never, ever have had Christ sent to us because it's the Father's love that sends Jesus. If it wasn't for the Father's foreplanning of shaping nations, histories, and people, we would never have ever had Jesus come in and we would never have salvation. So the Father deserves more than we give him glory and honor for the wonderful work he has done so that we might receive salvation. And well, and then there's Jesus. What more can I say about Christ? It is the pinnacle, it is the climax of our salvation. It is because Christ would be willing to be obedient to the Father, that he would humble himself, come and become man, that he would uh, live a life like us through the hardships you and I are experiencing. He would experience them himself. He would go through very difficult moments in life. He would be beaten beyond recognition, nailed to a cross. Our sins would be placed on him. The wrath of God that was deserved for us would be poured out on Jesus, and he would die, and he would rise again three days later. If it was not for Christ, you and I would never be saved. He is an integral, climactic point. He deserves all our honor and all our glory for the wonderful work that he has done. But may I suggest to you that the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, gets very little credit for our salvation. And he does play a real important role. The, the Holy Spirit was, man, used by the Father in planning the, the shape of nations and people. He, he, he was the, the force behind all of that, if you will. He is the one that raised Christ from the dead. But more so than that, he plays an intimate role in our lives in salvation. And that's what I want to show you this morning. And so there's a couple of stages of salvation, and we're going to look at them this morning. And they're a bit technical, and I'll explain them to you. Don't worry. Um, but I want you to know as we look at these groups of or stages of salvation, these things happen in an instant, in moments. Some of them are a little longer than others, but most of them happen quicker. Some of them we play no part in. And others, you and I, play a part in, but every single step you're going to see the Holy Spirit is involved. And the first step is a step called regeneration. Now, what does that mean? Regeneration is new life, uh, being made new. Maybe the biblical term in which you and I are probably most familiar with is this idea of being born again. That's the first one. And this is a role in which you and I are completely passive in. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. He does all uh, this work. We, we see this explained beautifully in John 1 verses 12 and 13. 
John writing um, about uh, Jesus says, and all who did believe him, who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. And here he has our word, who, who were born not of blood, nor of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God is the one who comes and makes us born again. And this works well with the physical imagery. And if we just want to think of uh, your and uh, my conception and, and growth in the womb and, and birth, you and I had little part to play in that, right? I didn't decide one day that we were going to be born. It just happened to us. We didn't decide we are going to be created in the womb. Man, it happened to us. In a very similar way, the imagery is carried across spiritually. And so this work that is done by God is um, even prophesied in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27. We read this verse last week, I think. Um, it, uh, the verse goes like this. God speaking through Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's saying, I'm going to take out that dead heart that doesn't beat, that doesn't work. Yeah, and I'm going to give you a heart of flesh so there might be beating in your hearts. There might be beating and blood flowing that there might be life in you. And he says, I will give you a spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, which member of the Trinity makes us alive? Which one does it? Now, there's no, there's no uh, prizes for the answer because we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So the answer is the Holy Spirit. Um, he's the one that does this in us. He's the one that produces this regeneration in us. He comes along and takes us from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. He does that. Now, we see some scriptures like 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says the Father is also involved in this process. There seems to be a teamwork between the Father and the Spirit in doing this work. So how does that happen? I was thinking about this, and I, I was, I was re, uh, reminded that the Spirit only ever does what the Father tells him to do. What he hears and is commanded to do, he does. So I assume that what happens is the Father comes along and says, go regenerate, go give life, go make alive, and the Spirit goes and does the work. There's this teamwork that takes place. Now, the obvious question that seems to pop up is, well, surely conversion takes place before regeneration. Now, I want to remind you again, these things happen in moments. But there's a guy named Charles Spurgeon. Some of you might have heard of him. He is the, he's called the Prince of Preachers. He is the greatest Baptist that probably has ever lived. He preached over to 10 million people, and he um, didn't have TV and radios and stuff in those days. They just kind of preached. He was an incredible man. And he writes this on that comment. He writes, he says this, it is true that one of the earliest developments in, uh, of life is a conversion of sin. But before a man can see his need of a savior, he must be a living man. Before he can really, I mean in a spiritual position, in a saving, effective manner, understand his own depravity, that is sin, he must have eyes with which to see his depravity. He must have ears with to, uh, which to hear the sentence of the law. He must be quickened and made alive. Otherwise, he could not be capable of feeling, seeing, and discerning after all. What is Charles Spurgeon trying to say here? He's saying, dead people can't do anything. 
It's this amazing revelation. Dead people can't hear. They can't see. They just can't do that. So before we can hear about our sinfulness, before we can see the glory of Christ, we need to be made alive. And what happens is the Spirit comes and He makes us alive. And in that instant, when He he makes us alive, we suddenly have eyes to see, we have ears to hear. And what happens? Man, we see the depravity of our sin. We see the ugliness of it all. We hear the law condemning us because we have failed. And then the Spirit comes along and He points us to Christ. And we see the wonders, the hope, the joy, the peace that's available to us in Jesus because He has died for us. We see Him as Savior. In that moment, we are made alive. We see the ugliness and we see the wonder at the same time. When does that happen, though? Well, 1 Peter Um, 1 Peter 1 verses 23 and 25 gives us an indication. It says, you have been born anew. There's our word, born anew. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and abiding word of God, that word is the good news which was preached to you. Here it is. One day you were sitting down and you were reading God's word. And as you were reading, man, it was boring and dreary and just seemed heavy every time you read it before. But this particular time, as you were reading it, for some unknown reason, man, it started to burn the heart. There was a weariness that, that came upon you because you realized your own sin. What had happened? Man, the Spirit has made you alive. He's given you life. And so, man, as you see this word, you see the heaviness and you see the wonders of Christ. Oh, I know this happened to some of you. You were sitting in church and as the pastor was preaching, you'd been in church many times before. Your wife has dragged you there and she promised if you come to church, you can go fishing later. And so you come. And as you were sitting in the pews, like you had done many other times before, suddenly, for some unknown reason, there was this weightiness of conviction of sin. It burnt in you. You saw Christ clearly for the first time in which you hadn't seen before. I know, Brian, this was something similar to yours. Suddenly you got hot in your seat and you had to stand up as that pastor called you. You did not know why. Why this time? Because the Spirit had made you alive, something in you. The the first stage that happens is we are made alive. And then once it happens, man, we, we see our sinfulness and we see the wonders of Christ. And that moves us into this next stage, which is conversion. Remember, these happen in moments. And as that happened, we saw the ugliness of sin, and we saw the beauty of Christ. But there's a role we need to play here. We need to, when we see the ugliness of our sin, what needs to happen is we need to repent from it. And when we see the wonders of Christ, we need to have faith, we need to trust Him. And there's a role we play here, but the Spirit comes and He shows us the ugliness of our sin. And repentance is what needs to take place. But he has importance here. There's two types of repentance as we see in the New Testament. The first type of repentance is this imagery that is used of, um, of emotion. It's, it's, it's regret. It's remorse. It's this feeling of, man, I've messed up between God and myself. I have done horrible things. I have, I've messed up with this person. And there's this deep regret and remorse. It feels horrible. But there's a warning that comes with this one. 
The same type of word that is used here, this remorse and regret, is the word that is used to explain Judas. Remember Judas? He betrayed Jesus. And after he betrayed Christ, there is this deep remorse and regret that takes place. He feels bad because of his sin, what he has done. But the problem here is Judas does what? Self-destruction. He destroys himself. He kills himself. And, and here's the thing is repentance always needs an action to come back to Jesus. True repentance is not just feeling bad. True repentance is running to Christ. Maybe this is best contrasted with Peter. Peter and Judas. Judas betrays Christ. Peter denies Jesus three times. When, when Peter hears uh, the rooster crow after he's denied Jesus three times, what happens? There is a mourning. Scripture talks about how he weeps because he realizes what he's done. There is a remorse and a regret, regret, but the two actions are different. Judas kills himself where Peter runs to Christ eventually. There's restoration, there's worship that will take place between Christ and Peter. Church, it is important for us to understand that repentance is not just feeling bad for what you have done. It requires an action of running back to Jesus. And this is the second word in the New Testament that describes repentance. It's, it's this imagery of a changed mind, thinking differently, That's what's important, is there needs to be a different approach to things. I was trying to think in in Scripture of a biblical example of this. There's a guy named Josiah. I preached on him about my fourth sermon I ever preached here at Sunny Ridge was on Josiah. And he's this young man. He, He becomes king at the age of eight. Well, I know we're coming up to elections soon. Imagine if an eight-year-old was elected a president. There would be chaos. Man, we would be in problems. And I can only imagine what the, uh, the Israelites felt. The, his, his granddaddy, his, his grandfather, Manasseh, was the worst king that ever lived. He, he sacrificed children to other gods, his own children. He produced uh, um, uh, loads and loads of high, high places, which are places to worship other gods in, to a point that God says, I am going to send the people of Israel into exile because of what this man has done, no matter what. He eventually dies, and Josiah's father comes into being, uh, comes in to be king. He's quickly assassinated, and Josiah comes in as king at the age of eight. Now, Scripture doesn't say so, but I'm just going to use my uh, uh, imagination here a little. Is My assumption is that Josiah grew up to be an arrogant young man. Man, I was elected prefect at Gnubi Primary School at the age of 12, and I thought I was the bee's knees. Imagine becoming king of a nation. Man, you, you think you are, are, are great. I'm sure he did. And, I, and this arrogant young man who ruled over a nation, who thought he had everything at his feet, at, at his late teens or early 20s, he decides that there's this place called the temple that's not being used. It needs to be cleaned up. And so he gets some people to start cleaning it and dusting it. And as they start cleaning it and sorting things out, the priests of the temple, this shows you how bad of a state Israel was in, stumble across the law. They hadn't read it before. And they pick up this book and they start to read through it, or scrolls, I'm, I'm probably more accurate. And as they read through the, the law, they realize the importance of it. They come to Josiah 
And they say, you need to hear this, guy. You need to read this. And as it is read to him, Josiah sees the wonders of this God. He, he sees this great or powerful God who, who's done amazing things, who's liberated them from the slavery of Egypt, who has gone and conquered Canaan, who's done all these things, but is a holy God, a God who requires law and living a certain way and that you may not worship any other God besides him. And now Josiah reads and hears this. There's a quickening that happens in him that he sees his sinfulness for the first time. And this pride in him is shattered and broken and he weeps and mourns because of his sin. There's that remorse, that regret that he has done something wrong. But Josiah doesn't leave it there. Man, Josiah goes, he, he gets a prophetess to tell him what to do, and he, he gathers the, all of the people of Israel together, and he reads the law to them. That's all five books, of the first five books of the Bible. That is a long day worth of reading. And he reads it to them, and at the end of it, he makes a covenant with them. And he says this, that he is going to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined him. You see that in 2 Kings 23 verse 3. But may I say here that Josiah didn't just make a covenant and just say some words like, I'm going to change. I promise, Lord, I will never do that again. But rather there is an action that takes place. There's a change of heart, but it leads to an action where his grandfather and his father built high places. Josiah starts to rip them down. He rips them down in Jerusalem. He rips them down in Judea, which is the province. He rips them down in Israel, which is the country. And he doesn't just stop in his own country, but rather near the end of his life, he starts to even go in Samaria, the neighboring countries, because he believed in what he said to the Lord. There was a change that took place, a pursuit after God wholly, to a point that God makes sure it is written about in him. 2 Kings 23 verse 25, it says this, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor any like him arise after him. What an incredible statement. Church, true repentance requires change. Change of mind, a pursuit after him. And this is the hope. We do this with the hope of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes and shows us our ugly state that we're in so that we might be able to repent from it, so that we might be able to turn away. And this happens for the Christian and the non-Christian. The Christian, this is something that we have to do continuously as we mess up, as we do. As the Holy Spirit shows us more of the ugliness inside of us and more of the sin that's in our lives, there's this need for us to turn away, change your mind, pursue something else. And for the non-Christian, this is important that you realize the ugliness of your sin so that you might see the need of your Savior. Because if you don't realize that you are sinful, if you don't realize that you are in desperate need of help, that you are in a hopeless state, you will never see your need for Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? He comes and saves us from our sin and reunites us with God. And if you do not see that you are utterly at a point where you are hopeless, that you cannot save yourself, then why would you need Christ? What the Spirit does is He makes that, He lightens up that ugliness. Oh man, it's not fun. He convicts us. It's not fun, but he does it. Why? So that we might see Christ. 
And as we see our ugliness and we are mourning or hurting or feeling heavy because of our sin, he does this incredible things where he shifts our eyes and shows us the wonders of Christ. He shows us that Jesus is the Lord and Savior. He shows us that he has paid for the sin in which we feel so heavy about. He shows us that there is no other way. There is no other one other than Christ in whom we can be saved by. He shows us the glorious hope of our Savior, that there will be peace, that there will be joy. And as we see that we turn and we start to trust and have faith in Jesus. The Spirit shows us the wonders of Christ. And it is that we see our hope and there needs to be faith. Now, what is faith? Church, faith is not a knowledge. It's not. Man, you can understand that Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, that he was born in Bethlehem, that he had some brothers and sisters, that he, he died on the cross. You can believe that he, uh, you can even know factually the fact that Christians say that he rose again from the dead. But if you do not believe it for yourself, it does not count. Because you can understand something as a head knowledge, but not believe it true. You can understand the theological books and what Christians talk about, but not believe it is true. You don't even approve of it. But may I even suggest to you that knowing it is true is not necessarily enough. Because faith is a personal application to self. Let me explain. I believe that there is a place in New Zealand called Christchurch. But it has no personal implication on my life. I believe it to be true. Besides for when the Bulls play there and lose against the Crusaders every time. Besides then, it has no implication on my life. You can believe that Christ lived, died and rose again. But if you do not personally apply it to you. If you do not have a personal relationship yourself, it is not enough. It is a scene of your sin and its ugliness and the Spirit illuminates the wonders of who Christ is that you come and you fall at His feet and you grip on it. It's a, it's a Lord, would you be my Savior? Would you be my God? Would you save me from my sin? Might I know you? There's this personalness to it. It's not just a knowledge or approving of it. It is a personal application. That is faith. Faith is a personal trust. It's trusting. It's holding on to. That's what we need to do. And may I suggest to you that you cannot in any way separate repentance and separate faith. They are both needed. You can't have one without the other. Why? Because what is true repentance? It's a turning away. It's a change of mind. But there is only other one way to go, and where's that? That is Christ. True repentance always leads to Jesus because that's the only other place in which we, cannot, we can go to. He is the only way. And so you have to have faith if you have truly repented. You have to have clinged on to Christ. And may I say, you can't have faith and still continue on living like you did. You can't. Why? Because faith is trusting in Jesus that he would have paid for your sin. It's a, a trusting that he is the only way, that he has changed you and made you new. And he is the one that is your only hope. It's a turning away 
completely in going to Christ. These two are interlinked and so important to one another. In order for us to have salvation, we need to have repented and have faith. You can't have faith without repentance because have you truly believed? And you can't have repentance without faith because where have you gone to? You have to go to Christ. These two are interlinked with each other. And I hope you see the Spirit's hand in that. Man, we repent, we hold on to Christ, but the Spirit is the one that shows us both. Without him, we would never see our sin. Without him, we would never see the wonders of Christ. And what happens next is, when we have that faith, when we've repented and had that faith, there is this thing called justification. I'm going to end off on this. And it takes place. This is the, the next stage. It's justification. What does that mean? I mean, that's a, a term we never use anywhere else outside of the church. It, it is a word, and this is a cheesy way in which we describe it. It is a word that means just as if I had never sinned. Can you see that justified, just as if I had never sinned? Theologians and Christians, can we can be cheesy sometimes, but that's a good way to explain it. And what happens in this, um, in this process is two declarations, two things that take place. The first is an imagery of uh, being in court of law. You have been counted guilty because of your sin or because of the stuff you've done. And the judge stands up and goes, you are free. Why? Because the price in which you could not pay has now been paid by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. And in that moment, there is this declaration that you are free, that the price has been paid, that you are no longer in debt. But it's more than that. Because it doesn't just stop there. Because what the imagery leaves you as is, I'm no longer guilty, but I'm neutrally free. I have no credit. I have got nothing to my name. But there's this beautiful thing of what God comes and does is the second declaration that he comes and makes. He says, but now you are righteous. It's what we call in theology imputed righteousness. He goes, you are righteous. I see you as righteous. Why? Because of what Jesus has done. And so while our our sin was placed on Christ so that he can pay for our sin, his righteousness and perfectness is placed on us through the blood of Jesus Christ so that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus and the good things that he has done. So I'm no longer in eternal debt, but now I'm in an endless credit of this wonder of what Jesus has done. It's incredible. And this is why I'm able to approach the throne of God. This is why I'm able to know him, because I am not sinful anymore, but rather I'm declared as righteous because of what Jesus has done. Hear me here. It's not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done that I am able to approach the throne of God. And no longer am I seen as, as a, a criminal who is deserved of punishment and death, but now I am seen as righteous, eternally righteous. And we are told in Romans 8 that we are sons and daughters of the living God. I walk around as a son or a daughter of the living God. That's the incredible work of salvation. And the work of the Spirit here is He comes and He dwells in us, and He comes and He confirms in us that we are children of this incredible God. He echoes it in our hearts. He helps us to know that we are right with him. He helps us to know that we have a father in heaven. He helps us to know that our savior is our savior. He comes and confirms this in us. Isn't that beautiful? This is what the Holy Spirit does. And so my request this morning and my hope is, again, for those of you who know Christ, 
don't you see the absolute wonder of what the Spirit has done? He has lovingly come to you so that he might regenerate you. He shows you your ugliness of your sin and he shows you the wonders of Christ. He comes and confirms that in your heart in salvation. And may I say, if you need him so much for salvation, how much more do we need him so that we might live out the salvation? That if he had to show us the wonders of Christ so that we might see him for who he is, how much more now that we know this Jesus, that he has to continue on showing us the glories and the depth of who Jesus is. We need him. And he is good. He is good. He cares for you that he would come and help you come to salvation, to experience eternity with God one day. He is good. Trust him trust him and for those of you who do not know Christ I hope this morning as horrible as it might sound that you're feeling a weightiness that I was talking about maybe you are maybe there's this weightiness on you going man I need this Jesus there's this opportunity to come to know him would, you, would everyone mind standing with me this morning as we close out in prayer would you mind standing if you can if you can't, you can sit, it's fine. And would we bow our, our, our heads and close our eyes as we close out in prayer? And at the end of the service, if there's anyone who's this weightiness, if you've got this weightiness on you, man, this is a wonderful opportunity to come and know this Christ. We, Mark and I would love to be able to work, walk that journey with you. We would love to help you to uh, make that commitment. Let us pray. Lord, we are incredibly grateful for the wonderful work of Jesus. Man, Jesus has come and he's died for us so that we might know you and enjoy you and experience life in you. But Lord, we realize that this life that we now have, this, this life that's in us is a life that we need to live out and we need the Spirit for that. And so we ask that you would empower us, we pray. Help us to depend on you, Holy Spirit. For the glory of Christ we ask. We desperately, desperately want to know more of Jesus and we need you for that. Lord, I pray for this wonderful congregation who, who faithfully serve you, who faithfully know you, who faithfully are committed to coming. And I pray that you would do an incredible work in them. Would you help them to experience the peace and love and joy that comes with knowing you more and more each day? May the times in your word be fresh and anew. Would you open up our hearts to the work that you're wanting to do in us, we ask. I pray for those that uh, this morning that don't know you, that you would reveal Christ to them in such a way that they would see the wonders and the beauty of this Jesus, knowing that he is the only way in which life can be experienced to its fullest. He is the only way in which our sin can be paid for. There is a peace and a joy in you which the world does not offer. May they see that clearly, we pray. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful work of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.